You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, Lavazza, and American National Insurance. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895 with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup and is available any way you brew your coffee. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to To Dine For, the podcast. Can you believe it? We are celebrating three years of doing this podcast. I can't believe it. If you have listened to one podcast or all of them, I want to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It has been an amazing journey, and we have interviewed some truly fascinating people. More than 150 people have been on this podcast, visionaries, entrepreneurs, and creatives. The mission of the show has never changed since day one, and that is to showcase the stories of people who have created something out of nothing, and they are doing it in service to the world. And having that mission has led to some pretty incredible things. First of all, it's led to a collective body of work that is really inspiring and so full of knowledge and information and insights. And so for this month, we are doing a series of mini masterclasses that really take the very best of some of the things that the To Dine For guests have said and bring them together. So that is what we're doing today. And the very first mini masterclass is on the topic of obstacles. <laughs> yes. I think one of the most important things I can do as an interviewer 
is to get a guest to talk about the obstacles they have faced to achieving their goal, whether you are writing a book or building a company or traversing a difficult career, you are going to hit obstacles. It's how you deal with that, how you react to them, and how you pivot that really determines your success. This is so important. I've seen it over and over again. And sometimes the obstacle can lead to the best outcome. It can force you to go in a different direction that actually leads to even more success. That is where the growth and the lessons are. I'll be honest, not every guest wants to talk about the not so great parts of their journey. It is puts you in a place of vulnerability. It puts you in a place of fear and talking about the negative, but that's where we learn and that's where the listener can learn too. So that's where we're gonna start today with obstacles. And the very first person that we're going to feature is Arlen Hamilton, who was sleeping on the floor of the San Francisco airport as she was working towards her first investment. Now she is a self-made venture capitalist, author, and co-founder of Backstage Capital, an investment group that aims to invest in underrepresented entrepreneurs. Arlen's story is amazing because she is amazing, and I want you to listen to what she said. You were learning it from the beginning, and that's what I think is so amazing and fascinating. How do you begin? Truly, I don't yeah. know if I've said this before, but with I got flashcards, like index cards, Did you? blank ones. And I went through different magazines and books and online videos, and I just started writing out key people and keywords and, and quizzing myself. That's how I started at the very beginning. And then I just started reading everything I could get my hands on and watching everything I could get in front of and um, asking people questions. Like I was just so insatiably curious that if 20 people said, get out of here, I don't want to talk to you, I didn't mind, you know? I was like, oh, just looking for that one to talk to me. So really, even at the beginning, the rejection didn't bother you? No. It didn't? No, and I don't quite know where that comes from, but it, it didn't really, um, didn't bother me. I think the, the biggest one um, that made the definite difference was a woman named Susan Kimberlin. She is an angel investor, still is, uh, with a great portfolio. And I met her in Silicon Valley, actually. She was early in her um, investing career. She had worked at a major tech company and was able to retire pretty early because she did so well there. And we met each other, we talked, we got each other. Mm. And she didn't know that I was living at the airport at the time. The San Francisco yeah, airport. Yeah, like people in my class that I was taking this two week boot camp, they were staying at the Four Seasons. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going back to- And you the, were sleeping on the floor yeah. of the San Francisco airport. Yeah. Because you had nowhere to go. Yeah. And you didn't have the funds to a hotel, was no. beyond your means. No, and I stayed at an at a Airbnb for a few days and then that ran out, <laughs> that capital ran out. Susan Kimberlin's $25,000 check was a game changer for Arlen. It was the spark she needed. The only problem, she was so new to the game, she didn't even have a bank account to deposit the check. Here you are, someone who's vi visualized being a part of the world of venture capital, taught yourself pretty much everything you know, and then actively tried to find your first investor in your fund, and here it is, the yes. What was that like? It was confirmation and it was, I said to myself, I'm never going backwards from this point on. I'll never be here again. I was in the parking lot of a grocery store when I got the news. I had my luggage with me. 
and my backpack and I got the, the, the news and I had been using that park, like the, the grocery store, um, like little food area as my office <laughs> the past few days. So I just I sauntered in there and I got me the grocery store sushi and a cupcake, <laughs> had my little celebration and I was like, peace. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, talking to the to everybody who was there. I was like, I'm out. But then, and that first yeah. check was twenty five thousand. The very first one was twenty five. She ended up coming back with another twenty five because she understood twenty five needs to go to a company, and then twenty five is to set up shop. Mm-hmm. So just a few days later, she, she believed in you. She believed in me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And she's like, so Susan is like, okay, I'll I'll, I'll send over twenty five k. Send me your wire information. And I sent her my mom's personal bank information <laughs> because I'm like, that's what I'm, I'm going to have. I'm going to get it out there and I'm going to do what I got to do. And what'd she and say? She's like, mm, no, no, <laughs> no. You need and a real bank yeah, account. She, this is so incredible. I mean, you realize how people are going to say, wow, she didn't even have a bank account and someone was willing to give her $25,000 yes. Yes. to invest in. And when I think about it now, of course, I think it's, if somebody came to me and wanted me to invest 25000 right. I would be, I would say the same thing to them. Right. No, um, but if but, you can do these things, we can get you there. Sometimes you're just not taught certain things. If, you're, if the rest of your life is about surviving, sometimes you don't learn the etiquette. And I'm not going to stop somebody at the door because they don't know the etiquette. When it comes to raising venture capital, one of the things that you say is that when you don't have money, you have to be the money. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, we know that money attracts money. At least I've learned that over time. People say it, and it's true. And if you don't have it, how do you attract it? Well, right. you become it. You become the asset. So even uh, if we go back to Susan's story of investing 25000 I mean, I'm adorable, but that's not why she <laughs> invested 25000 She invested 25000 I believe, because when we would have conversations, even though I was at the airport sleeping on rolled-up jeans, I had so much I had learned in those past three, three and a half years that she didn't know, that money couldn't buy her that information instantly. Mm-hmm. So by being around me and being able to ask me questions and kind of learn and... and, and learn things that she didn't even know to ask. That's valuable to her. So she wants to be around that, so she wants to catalyze that. Fascinating. So knowledge is power, and the more you know about something allows you to be the commodity Mm -hmm. that that person then wants to learn from you. So even if you have no money, if you have the knowledge, the right person's going to want to get in front of you. Absolutely. That's called being the money. That's it. That's being the money. Being the money. Is that not the greatest concept? I really, I have thought about that idea and concept for a very long time. And I'm so grateful to Arlen for that conversation um, that we had in Los Angeles. She really is such an inspiration. If you do not follow her, her Instagram handle is Arlen was here. You should definitely follow her. Okay, the second person, and this person is so beyond inspiring. You might have seen his name and his image in the airports because he is everywhere. Eric Weinmayer fully lost his vision when he was starting high school. That same year, he lost his mother in a car accident. 
Eric took his grief over his mother's death and the loss of his vision and channeled it into his passion for rock climbing, hiking, and outdoor adventuring. He then went on to become the first blind man to scale Mount Everest. He's the founder of the empowerment program called No Barriers. And I talked to him from a restaurant in Golden, Colorado called The Sherpa House. And what was that like? What was that first week like? It's uh, it's a period I it's hard to even think about because it's you're so overwhelmed, you know you're so uh, back against the wall, you know you're you're not really thinking, you're just surviving, you're just kind of trying to exist, and um, so it it took a while before I was able to kind of understand that it wasn't like a death sentence or it wasn't. Um, like a brick wall that, you know, just I'd never be able to get through. But it was kind of a new experience that I had to figure out the parameters of how to to push the envelope. The year after you became blind, your mother passed away in a car accident. Yeah. So you had a very traumatic high school experience. It's not something I'd wish on anyone, but a lot of world has trauma, you know, that they have to kind of... Mm, kind of climb their way out of, you know? So, yeah, I think a lot of my life has been sort of figuring out how to help people climb out of these situations where they're in these places they don't want to be there. And it's, it's, it's in a way, it's been a good learning experience. Yeah. My dad would drive me up to this recreational program and we would go out like canoeing and tandem biking and one week and they took us climbing. And I loved climbing. Rock climbing to me was it because I could use my hands and my feet and I could feel my way up the rock face mm -hmm. and problem solve. And it was fully engaging and just beautiful, like all the smells and mm -hmm. textures of the rock. And, and then I got up high and I remember hearing the sound, you know, blind people use um, what's called echolocation. You know, like I can hear this wall here mm. and the ceiling, you know. And so I could hear over the valley and it was just so beautiful. And I thought this is different from what I thought blindness would be like. Um, so I know that that was a thread that just kept building in my life. Okay, so you're, you're really developing this huge love of hiking. And at some point you make the decision to tackle Mount Everest. Yeah. Where does that come from? Well, I'd been climbing a bunch and I was probably like in my late 20s, I guess, before I really started thinking maybe this is real. But, you know, you're always thinking... Uh, probably most people I'm probably similar to, you know, half of you wants to dream and do this big thing and half of you is like, what are you, crazy? Terrifying. You know, like, yeah, this is not what a blind person should be doing with his life. <laughs> like, this is not the stuff I've read about blindness. So that was probably a year of just like telling myself, could I do this? No, I can't do this. Can I do this? You know, and you got to build up to it and then you got to speak it out loud. And I remember speaking it out loud for the first time. It was like really scary. Take me to the most difficult day of the climb. Well, when you get to base camp, you're at almost you're at almost eighteen thousand feet. Wow! So you're like, you know, barely able to breathe, and you're like, oh my god, this this is the, just the start. Yeah, actually, above eighteen thousand feet, they call it affectionately the death zone so <laughs> makes you want to go climbing 
Eric says hiking while blind is a combination of courage and skill, being prepared and trusting the team. Without the 13-person team, Eric could never have made this climb. Every step and overcoming every obstacle was made possible by a team who literally became his eyes. I think sometimes my brain has tried to sabotage me. Do you mean that your brain has tried to make you risk averse? That has tried exactly. to keep you safe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to you, that sabotage. Fear is a good thing in a way because it keeps you alive, right? Right. So it can be a really healthy thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that's a fear not necessarily based on the reality of the circumstances. Because when I'm up on Everest or I'm kayaking or something like that, I have an amazing team around me. I've trained for six years. Um, I'm as fit as I can be. Uh, I put the time in. Well, of course, you have to be bold a little bit, but you're minimizing the risk. And, um, but your brain still sometimes uh, just sort of gets irrational. Sure, so, sure. Uh, you, you make the summit. There is this moment of realization that you did it. Yeah. What was that like? It's, uh, it's, it's in a way your, your brain can't really believe it's true, you know, because you, I, when I was a, a kid, like, when I'd just gone blind, um, my Braille teacher was trying to get me to learn Braille, and I didn't want anything to do with this stupid thing of reading with your fingers, you know, like, that's for blind people, and I didn't want to be blind. Uh, standing on top of Everest, definitely, I had this crazy uh, realization, like, that I'd come a long way. Pasquale, our team leader, we got down through the ice fall that last time, and he pulled me aside, and he said, uh, he said, Eric, don't let Everest be the greatest thing you ever do. And, you know, I thought, Peavy, that's terrible timing. Like, <laughs> you know, let me come home and eat some momos and drink some mango lassies and like relax with my kids. And like, what are you talking about? Like, what could you do after this? It was this challenge posed to Eric after just completing the greatest triumph of his life that became a pivotal moment. It was here that he began the journey to create an organization that would change thousands of lives. It took me a long time to figure out what he was saying, but what I think he was saying was that whether you have failures or accomplishments in life, those things get memorialized in your life. You know, they become kind of the thing that you hang yourself on, you hang your hat on, you know, like, like climb Everest and you put your trophies up and you hang your pictures and it's like, okay, I did that and I'm done. Or, or even to say like, okay, now I have to do something harder or scarier, you know, or riskier. I think that's a bad way to go. I think what he was saying was like, use these experiences as a catalyst to grow and to go to new places in your life. And you, you kind of have no idea where, you're, where, where that place is that you're going but it's like a wave, you just gotta ride it and you gotta use these experiences as energy to propel you forward. And uh, that, that just to me was like such genius. Mm. We help people break through barriers in their lives, people with challenges, physical and emotional challenges. And uh, next year we'll impact 20,000 people. Wow, um, and, and, and of not just people who are disabled, but people who are veterans, people who have any sort of limitation, whether it's a psychological mindset or whether it's a physical 
barrier, right? You yeah. Do, you the do. physical stuff sometimes is almost the easy stuff. Really? Yeah. You know, when your fears and your anxieties and your addictions and the self-sabotaging behaviors, all that stuff just cripples you. So, um, so yeah, most of our community, at least half, are people with emotional or invisible barriers. And in that way, I think we're all part of the same club. You know, we all have something that gets in our way. And I think it just was like this huge revelation to me. Like, I was lucky. Being blind, I had great parents. But imagine you have nobody to show you the map of life. There's nobody to mentor you. You are just in such a tougher place. Right. So we work with kids in the foster care system, um, first-generation Americans. We collect the team. They build the team. We learn what a team is, how you rely on each other, how you trust each other. You go through a big experience with some adversity, and you have an accomplishment together, and along the way, you really reboot. You really talk about what this life means that we want to achieve. And what does that map look like? What are the elements that exist along the way that we really have to understand to, to change our mindset? And um, people come out of these experiences and we have them take a no barriers pledge, which is like your commitment statement to change and grow. Yeah. It's cool to see that transformation in people and know that transformation does exist. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National Agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National Agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila.
Cheers, everyone. Jake Wood left his college football career at the University of Wisconsin-Madison to enroll in the United States Marines. After two deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, Jake was left with the desire to continue helping those in need. He founded Team Rubicon, a volunteer organization made up of military veterans, which deploys disaster response teams to different corners of the world. In 2007, Jake was deployed to Iraq's Anbar province, an area known as the Triangle of Death. He spent seven months in Iraq. In 2008, Jake was deployed a second time, this time to Afghanistan as a sniper. Jake's unit was one of the hardest hit in Afghanistan. During eight months of combat, the 27th suffered more casualties than any Marine battalion that year. This is, it's not really an easy question to ask when I'm just gonna go ahead and ask it. Um, was your experience serving in Iraq and Afghanistan what you thought it would be? I'm glad we ordered beer for this conversation. <laughs> in many ways it was, um, and that's both good and bad. In Iraq we were there during the bloodiest year of the war in an area known as the Triangle of Death, so we got everything we were promised. The wounds from the deployment came home with them. Of the 1,200 Marines deployed with the unit that year, at least 13 have committed suicide. The suicide rate for Jake's unit is nearly four times the rate for young male veterans and 14 times the rate of suicide in America. Where did the idea for Team Rubicon begin? I woke up one morning and the Haiti earthquake had happened. Seeing that unfold, I called an organization and asked if I could deploy with them. Hmm. I had seven months free. Okay. I just got out of the Marine Corps, was waiting to go to graduate school and I had seven months to do whatever I wanted. And um, they wouldn't let me deploy. And I don't blame them. I mean, in hindsight now, if after running a global humanitarian organization for 10 years, if some idiot called me right after a you know, 7-0 earthquake, I'd, I'd tell him to get lost too. But, but what was it? You, you just realized you could do something and you wanted to act. I was a foolish 26-year-old kid who thought he was Superman mm. and wanted to help. You kind of have to be a little foolish, a little crazy, to think you could do something uh, on a big level, on a big scale. Yeah, and there were plenty of others with us who had the same thing. And there's a reason why every job description we've posted over 10 years has one line in it. It's the same across all of them, which is we're looking for people foolish enough to think they can change the world and smart enough to have a chance. Foolishness is a character trait that we look for. Mm. Um, I love that. So um, you did go to Haiti. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So you, you, oh, call, yeah. you called them up, you said, hey, I want to help. Didn't take no for an answer. I called a couple of guys I served with, and, you know, long story short, we put together a team. Wait a minute. So it was because they said no that you did it yourself. Oh, yeah. Wow. So yeah. that really is the beginning. Okay, so tell me, so you get there, what happens? Yes, yeah, so we get down there about four days after the earthquake, and uh, we have a team of eight, and we just start working. Uh, we, we, we're taking these doctors into these... Uh, displaced persons camps and, um, you know, treating people uh, with, you know, doing this medical triage work and, and it was, it was horrific. I mean, it was the first, the first week in Haiti was, I mean, frankly worse than any battlefield I'd seen. I mean, the wounds were, um, you could almost not describe them. They were so, they were so bad and, you know, disease was starting to set in, gangrene was starting to set in. Um, you know, women were delivering babies in the streets and in fields. You know, so we kind of navigated that situation for a total of about 20 days. 
And we came back and my co-founder and I just said, all right, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's see if we can kind of take this spark and build it into something special. We were trying to convince big companies and foundations to, to fund the idea and give us the, the capital to build it out. And you know, we kept hearing, hey, this is, this is not scalable, it's not sustainable. From no, who? No, every. Really, everyone yeah. was saying this isn't scalable, this isn't sustainable. And, and what do you say to that? What was your thought when, when you heard that? How do you like me now? <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the time, was there doubt yourself or did you think there is a way? I think we always believed. I think we always thought that everyone else was just too ignorant to see what we saw, which I think is kind of a, a character trait of most entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. But um, I think we saw it so clearly ourselves. When did you turn a corner from everyone telling you this can't be done, knowing yourself it can, what happened? I mean, there were a few moments that um, were pretty pivotal. The first one was in 2011, we responded to our first domestic disaster. We'd never thought of ourselves as responding within the U.S. And then uh, a tornado hit Tuscaloosa, and we didn't know what we were gonna do. We just figured, you know, let's go figure it out. That was our first clue to this is how we scale. Responding domestically, it, it, it opens up a new donor pool. It's an increased frequency of operations. It allows us to expand our volunteer base. You know, so we, we get those reps that I talked about because there's tornadoes and floods and hurricanes and fires happening every week in this country. In 2011, we kind of made this pivot, not necessarily away from international operations, but really focusing on domestic operations. And then um, I'd say the real inflection point, the first one came after Superstorm Sandy hit New York. And, uh, and we, were, we were struggling. I, I remember about a month before Sandy hit, my finance director came to me and was like, Jake, we gotta start talking about the, the cash. Yeah. We barely had enough money to mount an effective operation early on. But we had, we had teams out. Over the first couple of days, the reports coming back to us from our teams in the field were just like, hey, this is crazy. We have to scale up. There was, it was this decision and it was the most consequential decision we ever made. You know, we had to roll the dice. Um, because if we went all in and we didn't raise the money to pay for it, we were gonna go bankrupt. Right. Like no, wow. no doubt about it, the organization was gonna be bankrupt in 90 days. Wow. It was the biggest decision and the result was we, we took this huge leap. You know, we were trending towards probably finishing that year with six or $700 in revenue. And we finished with almost 3 million. You know, we were on every major news station. And so it just, we just kind of took this step into that next level. And suddenly even our peers in the emergency management space who, who had never seen us as peers were inviting us to that table. So and the respect came. The respect came. With Superstorm Standy and what you were able to do there. Yeah, for a lot of people, it's, it's hard to come home. Um, so many men and women join the military and they give their life to the service. You know, they, they move away from their family, they deploy overseas, they fight, they lose friends, they, you know, they kind of, they, they throw themselves at the mercy of whatever branch of service they're in. Life will never be the same. And you know, one of the things we discovered at Team Rubicon is that it's not rocket science to restore those things. You know, they're looking for funny. a mission. They're looking for purpose. And they don't always know that, but then it hits them in the face when they 
encounter it and they realize what they've been missing the whole time. You know, the opportunity to have impact, the opportunity to help somebody in their darkest moment. Mm -hmm. Jessica Alba became an award-winning actress who followed her drive to represent Mexican-Americans on the big screen. So after achieving much success in Hollywood, she pivoted. She used her platform to create a company called The Honest Company, which is dedicated to creating household products without relying on harmful chemicals. It was a huge pivot for her. It was a huge trial and error period where she really didn't know what she was doing. So listen to her story. I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. Right. There was no nepotism. There were no like contacts. Right. No there was connections. no networking connections, none of that. I just came here and I literally I auditioned every day for like 10 times a day mm. and got thousands of no's mm. for every yes. But I just kept pushing and, and I believed that there was there were girls out there and boys, but there were people out there who looked like me or who could relate to me that wanted to see themselves mm. on screen. And, uh, you know, there just weren't a lot of Mexican-Americans that I saw or women of color who were leading ladies mm -hmm. um, in movies. It was usually dudes. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly in the movies that I really liked, which were action movies. And so... Um, I just felt like there was an opportunity there. It sounds like you were willing to outwork anyone to follow your dream. I did, and like I wasn't the most talented or the best looking girl who was in this town trying to make it. I just hustled mm. and figured it out. And, and I think if there's a will, there's a way. Mm -hmm. And every time, you know, I would get barriers, you know, set put around me, I just figured out how to like pierce through it, go around it, going over it. <laughs> As a child, you were very sick. Yeah, I was very sick. And you were in and out of having hospital. pneumonia and in and out of the hospital. Yeah. Tell me about that. I was like, always had, a, I always had a breathing treatment <laughs> mask attached to my face. Um, yeah, I was very sick. And I had kidney issues. I had my appendix. I had cysts on my throat, mm. my tonsils. And lots of surgeries. Um, before I was 11. Do you think... Um, and then I had complications with my asthma. So any cold I got immediately turned into pneumonia. It was awful. So you were more sensitive to the concept of pollutants affecting your health yeah. than the average person. And so this was all laying the groundwork yeah. for the Honest Company and you didn't know it. It's true, actually, yeah. Weirdly. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Like her Hollywood career, Jessica set out with steely determination to get answers to her chemical concerns, not knowing where all this would lead. And then I learned about like the rise of all these chemicals uh, that have been put into everyday products weirdly coincided with the rise of all these illnesses. Like what? Like cancers, learning disabilities, obesity, um, a lot of... Um, synthetic um, fragrances and petrochemicals, certain things um, have are their endocrine disruptors. So uh, they basically mutate your genes and um, even trace amounts of like lead uh, that can be found in certain cosmetics could actually um, 
affect the way that your baby's brain is developing while you're pregnant. And so, so as you're finding this information, so I was you're a newborn out. baby. I threw out everything in my house. I was like, what do I do? How do I shop around the problem? But what was it about you? What was it about you that said, even learning all this information is scary, but then you said, I'm gonna do something about this and something needs to be done now and I'm gonna take it on myself. I think I also looked around at just like the social injustice of, you know, it seemed like only people who were privileged had the opportunity to live a better, safer, healthier life because mm -hmm. they could afford alternative things and sure. they could educate themselves and they had the space and the time to do it. And it's like people who have three jobs, like my parents both mm -hmm. did, and who were young and just like living paycheck to paycheck, it shouldn't be that difficult for them to also have the opportunity to live a good and healthy life. Um, and so uh, that was really the mission. I just wanted to give people access to better products. I had read an article that said that when you were explaining a little bit about what you wanted to do, someone said, why don't you just make a perfume and put your name on it? Yeah, because everyone was, it was like the days when everyone was doing, licensing their brand, their, their names, and doing perfume deals. And it was like the most lucrative deal out there. Uh, and there weren't as many people, if at all, who were starting a business completely from scratch and even like outside of their core kind of audience. So I did market research and I found out that my core audience was like a 15 to 35 year old male and not a <laughs> 25 to 35 audience. year old mom. So I then got on social media while I was trying to find the right business partner to um, connect with, with the consumer that I wanted to reach and be um, have her realize I'm just like her. Right. The success of The Honest Company can be directly attributed to Jessica's ability to connect on social media, to tell the story of just being a mom concerned about the chemicals in everyday cleaning products. Her ability to carve a whole new audience and connect with them in a real way helped create this brand, one that today is valued at a billion dollars. And it really um, built the audience on social media organically mm -hmm. um, by just being authentic on the platform. Well, this is a concept that you really believe in, and this is like, and it solves a problem. Franklin Leonard is the founder of The Blacklist, a website that gathers the best passed over film screenplays. Franklin Leonard is the founder of The Blacklist, a website that gathers the best passed over film screenplays and showcases them to Hollywood. The Blacklist has been the catalyst for several Oscar-winning films to go into production. Listen to his story. I mean, look, I, I tend to be very reluctant to claim credit for the success of these things because I didn't make the movies. I didn't, mm. you know, I didn't do craft service on the films. <laughs> so it, it's, you know, there are people that have said this movie would not have gotten made if it hadn't been for The Blacklist, right? Chris Terrio has said that about Argo. Mm. Kelly Marcel has said that about Saving Mr. Banks. But one that I, that I hold particularly close is The, uh, the King's Speech. Mm. Um, I, I grew up with a stutter. Mm. And so I remember reading that script and, and, and feeling very emotional 
about it just personally mm-hmm. and then and, and sharing it widely with a, a large number of people and said people should make this movie if it gets made it will win uh, best picture and you know that's the kind of like hyperbolic call that people probably rightfully ignore and the writer at the time was in his 70s and so not necessarily in demand by the industry at all and I remember when the movie premiered at the Toronto Film Festival turning to a friend of mine who was an agent and saying hey you know this writer is not even represented right now mm. and months later there he was on the Oscar stage talking about being a late bloomer so mm. that one for me I think will always be special but but there look there are a lot of a lot of scripts that have been on the list that that I have a personal relationship with and the writers with whom I now have a personal relationship with and I think it's it's just good to see people who are doing great work recognized for that great work and, and to play however small a part of that is incredibly gratifying. The Blacklist in its inception was obviously screenplays that were championed by agents that had been overlooked. The website now is a little bit different. Can you explain that? Yeah, the annual list started in 2005. And by 2010, this notion of a once yearly PDF that circulated via email had become rather adorable, right? Like the internet (laughs) had sort of whooshed forward and the way that we share information, communicate all those things, I think had changed very rapidly. And by 2010, you know, I was going on a lot of speaking things and panels and talking about what the blacklist was. And the first question that would inevitably be asked of me was, you know, hey, it's great that you did this thing that helps people that are already in the system. But I wrote what I think is a pretty good script. You know, I I live in Indiana or Arkansas Mm -hmm. or Columbus, Georgia, where I grew up, but I don't know the right people to get so that it can end up on the blacklist. What do I do with my script so that I can get it seen? And, you know, I would come back to LA and ask people who had been in the industry longer than I was, or who were more wise about the industry's, you know, inner workings than I was. And I would ask, you know, what is the answer to this? Surely there is a system by which, you know, we are able to identify talent anywhere because that's the lifeblood of our business. And if we're not scouting that effectively, you know, we, we might as well be a basketball team that is only hiring the players that, that, that the owner knows. Right. And you're not, you're not going to do very well in the NBA if that's, if that's your roster. Mm-hmm. So I, we built, you know, me and my partner Dino built this website that, that allows anybody on earth to upload their screenplay for a small fee, pay an additional fee to get their script evaluated by experienced readers who've worked in the industry for at least a year. And if that script is good, we tell everybody in the industry like, hey, this is a really good script. You should do something with it. I think it, it it's not lost that you started you know a little bit selfishly wanting to read something great. You know, that's how this all started. Mm-hmm. But whether it was intentional or not, your mission changed. And what you've been able to do is tear down the walls of exclusivity. And I just wondered for you, sometimes life takes us on journeys that we don't anticipate. And I'm wondering what this is, experience has been for you personally. Yeah, you know, again, like you said, it started very selfishly. I think as we built the various tools to sort of continue this mission of identifying and celebrating great screenplays, what I realized is is that there was good business in removing that exclusivity, mm. right? So, you know, I think we have we're a business, we're a for-profit company. Uh, mm-hmm. We exist to uh, to to be successful on those terms. But what I realized very quickly is this, that because the industry has historically done such a bad job of sourcing talent in this realm, uh, there was an opportunity to do well by doing good. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we think of our mission now as identifying and celebrating great screenplays wherever we can find them, but most where the industry has historically failed to find them. And, you know, the best way to, to celebrate a great script is to get it made, and preferably with the involvement of the writer. And we, we, we do a fair amount of producing uh, now. I'm actually in Dublin right now 
now, having just finished producing a film that was discovered on the Blacklist website. Mm-hmm. But it, it's incredibly gratifying. I mean, look, I, I think that there's nothing quite as rewarding for me, at least, to, to get an email from a writer who says that they quit their day job because they sold a script to a studio. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or even, you know, the flip side of that is to get an email from a writer who says, you know, I uploaded my script to your site. Your readers just destroyed it. But for the first time, I understand what I need to do to write at the level where I can be a professional. I'm really excited to go back and do a rewrite. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I think we try to be of service uh, as much as humanly possible. And, and fortunately or unfortunately, the way the industry has been uh, arranged makes it possible to also have a for-profit business by addressing some of these issues. Yeah, it's... um. My, whatever innate sense of fairness I have and whatever commitment I have to that, I think is credit to my parents. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they, they raised me and my siblings as, as black kids in the deep South in the 80s and 90s with a very clear sense that, you know, we have been very lucky. My father's a doctor who was in the military for 25 years. My mom was a teacher. We didn't really want for anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we were sort of told growing up, as I think a lot of black kids are, like, you're going to have to work twice as hard to go half as far, mm-hmm. but that you have been given a lot. And so you owe a lot to sort of your family, your community, into the broader world. Mm. And then beyond that, I, I was just a bit of a math nerd, right? Like, I just had a natural <laughs> aptitude at you it. You were smart. Know. Just say it, frankly. You well, were naturally well, smart. I mean, look, I did very well academically, but I was specifically good at math, right? Mm. Like, I was captain of the math team in high school. Like, I was basically Steve Urkel, like, while Steve <laughs> Urkel was on television, which wasn't great for my social life. But that's very much who I was. And so, in many ways, the work that I'm doing right now is a synthesis of all of these things, mm-hmm. right? It's a synthesis of the way I was raised and the point of view I was raised with. It's a synthesis of sort of my natural inclination towards quantitative analysis and systems thinking. Mm. And then I think it's also like, you know, I've as I've gotten older, I'm sort of fascinated by the role of storytelling and the role of culture in the the world that we live in on a day to day basis. And so in many ways, I've sort of just marshaled all of these interests and abilities and and philosophies into one thing. and, And that's kind of what the blacklist is. Do you think that your family's advice was true? Do you think you had to work twice as hard to get half as far? And do you think that's true now? Absolutely. You know, look, I don't know if the numbers are exactly right, twice as hard to get half as far, mm-hmm. but I, I think that, you know, in any business sector, the numbers are pretty inarguable that, that black folks have to do more to get less. And, and, and intersectionally, if you're a black woman, a black, you know, a black woman with a disability, it's going to be even harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, earlier this month, McKinsey and Company, my former employer when I was a consultant, just mm-hmm. published a study about the state of race in Hollywood. And they found that, you know, black content is undervalued, underdistributed, undermarketed, undersupported, and that despite that, black content still delivers a 10% better ROI than so-called white content. And, and that, you know, there's a, a literally dozens of, of sort of throttle points throughout this uniquely complex and interdependent value chain that makes it virtually impossible for, for black folks to, to be valued and to contribute in the ways that they're actually capable of. And more strikingly, that the consequence of that economic, that market failure within the industry is $10 billion a year in annual revenue for the industry as a whole. So the short answer is yes, I think it has been harder as a black person to mm-hmm. succeed uh, in this industry and many others than it would be if I didn't look the way that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, but the headline here is, is that the industry itself, not just black Hollywood, not just me, loses $10 billion annually as a consequence of that failure. So, you know, again, I think there's a moral and ethical imperative to addressing these things. But even if you can't get on board for the moral and ethical imperative, like, let's, let's all try to get this money. Mm-hmm. 
And that was my conversation with Franklin Leonard, who I cannot say enough great things about what the blacklist is doing for Hollywood and how it's democratizing. Being able to get a screenplay into the right hands is really stunning. I think Ryan Holiday said it best when he said the obstacle is the way. So, you know, it's the concept that we don't, no one wants an obstacle when they're trying to achieve something, when they're trying to do something. No one wants an, a boulder thrown in their way. But very often the obstacle is showing you which direction to go in if you'll only pay attention to it. Instead of treating it as a nuisance or a problem, say to yourself, what is this obstacle trying to teach me? And perhaps, just maybe, it's sending me in a better direction. How's that for some positivity? <laughs> If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of To Dime For The Podcast. We have another mini masterclass coming up next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at To Dine For With Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Lavazza and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.